Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Amen. Well, I'm going to invite us to sit in two movements with this gospel reading this morning. Uh, I'm going to do a lot of the talking during the first movement, uh, but actually during the second movement, as I was sitting with this text this week and even uh, this morning, this morning was one of those mornings where just feeling prompted to get up and rewrite the entire sermon of just giving space toward the second movement for us just to listen together uh, to the words of Jesus himself and let him speak to us and to welcome him as he welcomes us. And so uh, to begin with this first movement in our gospel reading, we're continuing to keep company with Jesus and his first friends um, as we have over the last few weeks in Jesus's journey to the cross. Uh, We pick up on Jesus telling his friends exactly what is going to happen. And in the words of Mark, he describes Jesus's friends responding. uh, They did not understand what he was saying. They were afraid to ask him. Uh, This is one of those moments where uh, we're supposed to feel sorry for the disciples. Uh, These earliest friends of Jesus just keep tripping and stumbling over their own feet. Uh, Just a few chapters ago, Jesus warns about the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, uh, to which the disciples go, that's right, we should have brought bread. They completely miss the point. And even here, as Jesus begins to tell them the fact, boop, they trip again. And I've spent the last, uh, I've spent time on this last few weeks, so I won't linger here. But again, some of this comes down to their expectations of what the Messiah would be. Their expectations are running into the reality of who Jesus was being revealed as. Their expectations were that the Messiah would conquer through the death of others, certainly not his own death. Their expectations were the Messiah would overthrow Rome, not be seemingly overthrown by that very empire. And so their confusion, And their fear to ask in a moment like this is understandable. Mark then goes on to say, uh, then they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, Jesus asked them, hey, what were you arguing about on the way? And they were silent. For on the way, what had they been arguing about? They had been arguing about who amongst them was the greatest. And let that just sink in for a moment. Jesus has explained again the kind of death he'll die. And their response out of confusion and fear is to argue about who was the greatest. And let's be honest here about what kind of arguing this probably was. I doubt that it was a type of argument where Peter was going, you know what, guys, I think Philip might be the greatest among us. And Philip was like, no, Peter, you're the greatest. To which Matthew goes, guys, I was thinking John. And John was like, "Ah, that's crazy. Matthew, I was thinking you. No, these friends of Jesus have pieced half the message together. And in a moment when Jesus is lovingly redirecting them and reorienting them to reality, out of fear and confusion, they double down on their own way of seeing the world. But this old way of seeing the world, that if this is the Messiah, then we're a part of his trusted group, which means openness to power, to jobs in the administration of his kingdom. Y'all, we're going to sit at his right and his left, and I think it's going to be me, not you. And so what does this lead to? It leads not to unity amongst Jesus's friends. It leads to strife. It doesn't lead to freedom. lead to freedom. It leads to fear, and it leads to shame. And as if to help us avoid overly simplistic answers to why all this is happening, 
Because, right, that's the moment of when we're either experiencing fear and confusion and shame in our own life or in the life of another, we run to simple answers. But almost as if to keep us from doing that, the church has given us in the lectionary this reading from James' letter to the church, as if an older James is coming alongside us, looking back on a younger version of himself and all of his friends. And like a diagnostic specialist pulls back the curtain and goes, let me explain to you what's actually going on beneath the surface of my friends in this moment. James doesn't leave us wondering about what's going on. He says this, and I think it's worth hearing these words of James again. Who is wise and understanding among you? Again, imagine James, who's walked this way, knows these men, knows this Savior, looking at this scene, standing there going, who is wise and understanding among you? You thought Jesus was talking about the fact you forgot your lunch rather than avoiding the yeast of the Pharisees. Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, friends, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above. The wisdom that walks ahead of you, who's overhearing from a distance your argument, that wisdom is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is is sown in peace for those who make peace. I think he'd look at his friends and go, friends, these conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? The struggle of life and death at war in your soul? You want something and you don't have it. So you're willing to commit murder and dehumanize your friends and your brothers. You covet something and you cannot obtain it. So you engage in disputes and conflicts over who is the greatest. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. Submit yourselves to God, my friends. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, the God who walks in front of you, whose dust covers your robes. Draw near to this God as he has drawn near to you. To which all of us would be like, go, James. Yes. And in this moment, James turns at us and goes, and now you, my friend. Think if James had this story in mind, he begins with the fear, the shame, and the division and asks the question, where do these things come from? It's not enough to go out because somebody wanted to be at first. Somebody wanted to be at the top. What we're seeing in this moment between the friends of Jesus is not the good life. It is not the wisdom of God. How does a community of God's friends walking with him day and night, keeping company with him, get into an argument about who is the greatest and thus an argument amongst themselves about who is not? Because you can't have the one argument without having the other about who is the least. And to answer this, his answer wouldn't be, y'all are living according to wisdom to a way that is not received from God, shaped by God, oriented towards God. Because embedded in James's words are James's belief 
that there are two types of wisdom, two ways maybe of navigating this world. And what differentiates the two? Well, what is not seen is what motivates the two. One is motivated by bitter envy and selfish ambition. James says that kind of wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and even goes as far to say devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. In some ways, he he sort of captures human history. Even today, right? Envy is one of the acceptable disordered desires. It's one of the palatable sins as long as it is our envy on the throne and we are not suffering at the hand of someone else's. At that point, envy is no longer palatable. Envy drives industry. It drives social media platforms. It drives life. Many of us have learned to keep company with it, but as the poet in Proverbs warns, can you really as a person take fire to your bosom and your clothes not be burned? Can you go upon hot coals and your feet not be burned? Can you hold envy close to your chest and not be burned? Envy is dangerous. It's dangerous company to keep because it's, for two reasons, I think it's very dangerous. One is that it's a merciless taskmaster. It never gets tired. Envy never gets worn out. One of the early church fathers, St. Cyprian, describes envy this way. What a gnawing worm of the soul. It is to envy someone for his virtue or for his happiness, to make another's good into your own evil, to be tortured by the prosperity of the famous. To the envious, no food brings joy, no drink is cheerful. They are always sighing, groaning, and weeping. And since the envious never set their envy aside, The heart possessed by envy is ripped apart day and night without pause. Other evils have their limits. In fact, he'll go on to say, if you want to be adulterous, eventually the adulterous act is done. If you decide to murder someone, eventually the person you decided to murder dies. Other evil has their limits, he continues. Whatever wrong is done, it ends when the crime is finished. But envy has no limit. It goes on and on and on. It is a sin without end. The more successful the person we envy, the hotter the fire of envy burns in us. Envy never grows tired. But secondly, envy keeps us oriented away from God. And what is the fruit of that disorientation? James doesn't hold back disorder and wickedness of every kind. A few verses later, he'll drive, the home, he'll drive home the point with these words, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings at war within you that you want what you do not have? Maybe another way of saying this is that we'd like to pretend that envy just stays here. That envy just stays inside, but it doesn't stay, does it? It leaks. Envy makes its way into the groundwater of our very lives. It's like a nagging worm that leads to all kinds of evil. But I have to think that at the top of the list of that evil is the dehumanization of one another. We commodify the other. We keep company with the other as long as it serves our ends. We label one another as an enemy an obstacle to our happiness and fulfillment, a rung on the ladder of our life to be stepped on and then disregarded, a person to lay the whips of our judgment on and with each blow and crack to swell with pride at our power and our knowledge. 
the problems that James says envy gives way to are communal. And what comes to mind in this moment are all the commands and teachings of Jesus that envy cannot keep company with. You cannot carry envy. And hear these words of Jesus. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. It cannot keep company with Jesus's new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. With Jesus's words, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. For you were called to freedom, sisters and brothers. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Do nothing from selfish, selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And that is just a few out of a much longer list of commands and words that envy cannot keep company with. And so one of the things that I think we're meant to, that the spirit means for us to sit with is where has envy bubbled up in our own lives? Where has it leaked? Where has envy wounded us? And out of that wounding, wounded others. And I think the invitation is come Holy Spirit, heal, restore, help us to rethink our thinking. Holy Spirit, grant us wisdom to know where we need to repair and reconcile. I think we need to sit with God in this, to think deeply about our lives where envy has allowed to take root, where envy has metastasized. But as you've already heard, while James spends important time on this kind of wisdom, he does also give us words to shape and form our imagination for what wisdom from God and what friendship with God is actually like. And what God is after from his friends is not a form of impersonation that only remains on the surface. Jesus, rather than be caught up in behavioral management, desires for us to consent to him, to drop down in the deeper places with him in order to name the ways we've missed the mark, to rethink our thinking, to ask him to heal our union with him and for him to pour out more grace, that kind invasion of his life into ours. And so I want to invite us to do this in the second movement as we do. We've spent a bit of time talking about the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of God, this way of keeping company with God in this life and in this world is not something something to simply know up in our heads, but to experience in our bodies, in our souls. So here's what I want to invite us to do this morning as we close over the next just few minutes is to engage with our God-given imagination in the final part of our gospel reading this morning. To come at this, to come at our own lives, to come at life with God through the perspective of a child. At the end of the gospel reading this morning, Jesus takes a little child, puts them in the middle of his friends, brings this little child up into his lap. And this week, I've been thinking about the perspective of this child. How aware was she of what was going on? Had she played with Jesus in the yard earlier? What was their familiarity? She thought they were beginning a new game. Did she experience peace as the creator took her in his arms? Was it a bit awkward, surrounded by a group of Jesus's friends who were just kind of shuffling their feet, trying not to make eye contact with Jesus or her? I think there's an invitation to imagine ourselves in this moment as the child. 
And in fact, if, if you feel comfortable doing this, either here or at Zoom, just invite you to just close your eyes and to imagine yourself in that moment as that child. Have you been playing with Jesus? Watching his friends shuffle their feet. You can tell they're not at peace, but there's something about the one who holds you that goes deeper than just some self-assuredness, a peace that is too deep for even your young words. And as we imagine ourselves as the child, the children of God, a community of God's friends drawn up into Christ's arms, as we take a moment to sit here, let's listen together to the voice of the creator who holds us. Listen to these words of Jesus through James, through his own words in Matthew. The creator, as he holds us, says, do you want to be counted as wise? To build a reputation for wisdom? Here's what to do. Live well, live wisely, live humbly. It's the way you live, not the way you talk that counts. Mean-spirited ambition isn't wisdom, friend. Boasting that you are wise isn't wisdom. Twisting the truth to make yourself sound wise isn't wisdom. In fact, friend, it's the furthest thing from wisdom. It's animal cunning. It's devilish plotting. Whenever you're trying to look better than others or get the better of others, things fall apart, don't they? Everyone ends up at others' throats. Child, friend, beloved, real wisdom, God's wisdom, my wisdom begins with a holy life. It's characterized by getting along with others. It's gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessing. It's not hot one day and cold the next, not two-faced. Child, you can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoys its results, but only if you do the hard work of getting along with one another, of treating each other with dignity and honor. Jesus pauses, and as he continues to hold you, he continues. In a word, what I'm saying is it's time to grow up a little bit. Your kingdom subjects, so it's time to live like it, to live out your God-created identity, live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives towards you, beloved. Remember, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourself proud owners of everything that cannot be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He is food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care at the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart oriented toward God, then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. Then when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family, you are blessed when your commitment to God provokes suffering, the suffering drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. 
These words of blessing from Jesus cause us to put our head against his chest. And his cheek meets ours. And he goes, here's another way to put it. You're here to be light. Bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. How often and however much as you need. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, my child, my friend, and you'll learn to live freely and rightly. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.